0: Welcome to this podcast from Riverside Church Whitstable. We hope you find it helpful and encouraging. If you would like to find out more information about us, why not check out our website at riversideuk.org, our Facebook page, or follow us on Twitter at WhitRiverside. So we continue our series, uh, Passion. We're on our journey through Jesus' week on the way to the cross, and we're looking at some of the key events during that week, Jake left us last week uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane uh, after sharing this simple meal with his disciples where he used the symbolism of bread and wine to describe to them his sacrifice, the, the bringing in of a new relationship with God uh, through through his physical body that would, be, uh, that would be basically broken and beaten and his blood would be shed. Jesus goes outside the walls of Jerusalem, he crosses the Kidron Valley and he goes to a place called the Garden of Gethsemane, which is in this green blob here on the on the map there. So he's gone out of the Walled City across the valley up to this garden. This garden seemed to be a place where he would go to often and retreat to, maybe a place of solitude and quiet where he could pray and collect his thoughts and deal with just the sheer emotional stresses of what he was going through. It was very late, it was very late uh, in in the on sort of the early hours of Friday morning, probably around 2 a.m that he was there with his disciples. Judas had left him to betray him. He knew Judas had gone, and the clock was ticking in terms of how much time you would have in this garden to pray and sort of to steel himself for what was coming. None of the disciples knew or even kind of understood the urgency of the hour. They kept falling asleep. Jesus went back to them three times and said, Look, can you try and stay awake? Can you try and watch and pray? Because this is an urgent time. But they still didn't comprehend what was happening. They still didn't understand the significance of what was happening at the time. Shortly afterwards, a crowd appears with clubs and swords, and they've come with the temple authorities to arrest Jesus in the garden. Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss, which even seems to surprise Jesus, um, that an act of intimacy would be the thing that Jews would do to betray him. Jesus is seized and arrested, the disciples flee into the night, and Jesus is bound and taken back the way he has come, back across the valley, back into the temple, uh, back through the walls of the city, and... Within 12 hours, he would be dead. So the clock is now ticking on the last moments of Jesus' life. Let's just pause for a moment because this story is so familiar to you, maybe. You don't often stop and reflect on why did Jesus allow himself to be captured? Why did Jesus allow himself to die? He could have never returned to Jerusalem to confront the authorities. He could have continued walking that night out onto the road to Bethany and escaped the authorities. He knew well that he was in jeopardy. He knew he was about to be arrested. He knew Judas had betrayed him. Why did he linger in the garden when he knew what was about to happen? Previously, on three separate occasions, he told his disciples that he knew he would be arrested. He knew the authorities would kill him. He uh, he even knew the details and the manner of his death. Probably the most graphic description we see in the Gospels is as Jesus approaches Jerusalem to ride in on that colt we talked about a few weeks ago. And in, in the Gospel of Mark, it records his words. It says, they were on the way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished, probably astonished that he's prepared to go back into Jerusalem and risk more conflict. While those who followed him were afraid. Again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Jesus seemed to know all the gory details and elements of the pain and the shame he would suffer at the hands of... Of the Gentile authorities, the Romans and the temple authorities. Both power groups wanted him dead. And Jesus knew all the details. He knew he would be mocked. He knew he would be flogged. The word here in the Greek is scourged. The Romans weren't content on just using a simple whip to whip you, they used a multi stranded whip called a flagellum or a flagrum. And it was designed literally to flay your skin from your back. It was embedded with bits of stone or metal or glass. And it was designed to tear the flesh and to bruise and bloody the person. If you were going to be scourged, you would be stripped naked. You would be tied around a post or over a post. So your back and your buttocks and your thighs and legs are all completely exposed. And then the Romans were set to work using the scourge to strip the skin from your body. Roman citizens were exempt from being scourged. Scourging was reserved for foreigners, for slaves, for non-Roman citizens. You see the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts is about to be scourged in Acts 22. They've, he's caused an uproar in Jerusalem and the Roman authorities have come in and seized him and they've stripped him and they've basically laid him out and they're about to scourge him as a form of interrogation, to ask him why he's caused such an uproar. It says this in Acts 22. As they stretched him out to flog him, a word scourge again. Paul said to the centurion standing there, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? It wasn't legal, and Paul was a Roman citizen, so he was quickly gathered up and collected, and and the Roman authorities kind of ushered him away. He, He escaped being scourged. But not so Jesus. Jesus knew he would suffer the scourge. And for me, just to think about that, makes my legs kind of turn to jelly. Just even the thought of having someone take a weapon like that to my back. If you've ever been hit by a cane or a rod or even just playfully sort of whipped with a towel, you know how painful it is. Imagine a multi-stranded whip designed to rip and tear your flesh. The Jews had a maximum limit of 39 lashes for their whipping, The Romans had no such limit. They could scourge you as long as they wanted to. As long as they wanted to. The first centurion historian Flavius Josephus wrote accounts of uh, of scourges carried out in Palestine where the strokes were delivered with such power and force by the Romans they exposed the person's innards. Jesus knew this was going to happen to him and yet he still stayed in the garden that night. He knew the immense pain that a scourging would bring. And he also knew he would die horribly through crucifixion. It says in um, in Matthew's Gospel, when Jesus finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Just like Scourging, Roman citizens were exempt from crucifixion. Crucifixion was designed for non-citizens. It was designed to deter anyone from rebelling against the Roman Empire. It was a terror weapon that was used. The Romans didn't invent crucifixion, but they perfected it over 500 years. Finally, it was abolished by Constantine in 4th century AD. But just like the bridges and the roads they built... The Romans were ruthlessly efficient in exacting these kind of terror weapons on the people and the places they occupied. Jesus knew he would face scourging. Jesus knew he would die through crucifixion. But he still let himself be captured in the garden that night. Let's go through the timeline of events quickly, and we'll linger on some of these events more than others. The first thing that happens is Jesus is taken to Cephas' house, the high priest's house, for interrogation. A guy called Ananus, he's the, he's the father-in-law of Caiaphas. And he seems to be part of a power family that was in place at the time who were ruling over the temple. And I think this is just probably just a, just a warm-up. Jesus is taken there and he faces this initial interrog- interrogation by Annas, the former high priest, who probably just wants to rub salt in the wound. That they've captured Jesus the man who challenges the authority of the temple. And then Jesus is taken for this night trial. A wider group of people gather, including the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. And, they, and Jesus is interrogated by Caiaphas. And this is just a late-night kangaroo court. There's no justice here. They know what they want to achieve. They know the full-on conclusion. They want Jesus to be proven be guilty and they want jesus to die so there's no justice here and jesus said this is a, always how you've treated your prophets jerusalem he wasn't surprised to receive the same treatment as the prophets that had gone before and while this is happening while this uh, kangaroo court's taking place peter is outside in the courtyard he's followed jesus in to uh this uh, the, uh, the the high priest's house and uh, this story here, where he denies Jesus three times, if you were going to try and build a narrative to start a movement with a, a hero, you wouldn't include stories like Peter's. It's so bad, it must be true. He denies Jesus three times. It reflects that so badly on Peter. And bear in mind, Peter is the rock on which the church will be built. But here he is denying Jesus three times. He's followed Jesus into the courtyard. There's some speculation how he, he gets in. How does he get into the inner court? Well, it says in John 18, 15 to 16 that he, he went there with another disciple. He was following Jesus. Uh, it said, because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had to wait outside at the door. We don't know who the unnamed disciple is, but somebody fits the bill. The only person left around at the time is Judas. And Judas is not hes certainly known by the temple authorities. He's certainly not a threat to the temple authorities. He's working with them. And perhaps Peter sort of got in on the coattails of Judas into the courtyard. Peter is recognized and challenged repeatedly three times. And and each time he moves further and further physically away from Jesus and further and further away from him relationally until the point he says, he literally, he swears. I don't even know who this guy is. At that point, Jesus catches his eye. And he runs into the night weeping bitterly. Now, the Jews have got a problem. They can't execute people. They haven't got the authority. So to get Jesus executed, they need Romans. So the next place they take Jesus is before a man called Pilate. Pontius Pilate was prefect of Judea between, from AD 26. Now, we mentioned before about the political situation in Jerusalem at the time. Pilate was put in power by a man called Sejanus. Sejanus was the most powerful man in Rome next to the emperor Tiberius. And so Pilate was appointed by this man Sejanus and basically he had powerful friends. But then a strange thing happened, that often did in Roman culture. In AD 31, the emperor Tiberius decided that Sejanus was a threat to him. And so he invited him in to a, a meeting where Sir Janus thought he'd face promotion and more glory. And actually, within moments, he was imprisoned and basically thrown into a dungeon. He was then strangled and his body thrown into the streets. That's how the Romans dealt with each other. There were riots through Rome as a result of this. And anything, they had gold statues built to Sejanus previously. They were all torn down. And if you were associated with him in any way, shape or form, then basically you were in trouble. There was mob revenge. Pilate was appointed by him and must have been really shaken by the news that this man who put him in power was now seen, was completely vilified and executed. His family was executed. His children were hung. Basically anybody to do with him was decimated by the Roman authorities. And here was Pilate walking this political tightrope between keeping the emperor happy and placating the Jews in Jerusalem. And the last thing Pilate needs is trouble. And who should come before him that morning? The temple authorities and the man called Jesus. The charges against Jesus are read out. There's no, they've been changed on the way. They've been tweaked by the temple authorities on the way to see Pilate. There's no mention of blasphemy. There's no mention of a threat to the temple. Pilate wouldn't be bothered by any of that. So on the way, the, cha- the charges against Jesus have been tweaked to bring a direct challenge to Rome. The temple authorities say, we found this man subverting our nation. He opposed payment of taxes to Caesar, and he claims to be Messiah, a king. The Jews were looking for a response, trying to trigger Pilate into action. And the two most likely things to do that were refusal to pay taxes and a threat to the emperor. Someone else is claiming to be king. Jesus didn't look much like a king. He hadn't slept for hours. He'd been beaten up, roughed up. And so Pilate looks at him and says, are you the king of the Jews? And you can sense the sarcasm in his voice. Well, Jesus' response is typically deadpan. You say so. Pilate wants nothing of this situation. He doesn't want any trouble that morning. So he thinks, what can I do? Jesus is from Galilee. Herod's in charge of Galilee. Off you go to see Herod. And he dismisses the party. Let Herod, the puppet king, Deal with this situation, and that's where the rebel goes next—the Hasmonean Palace, where Jesus, so where Herod now lives. Let's quickly chart the course of where Jesus come from: Gethsemane, back into Jerusalem, probably by the Don Gate, up through the Lower City, up into the Upper City where the powerful and the rich lived—House of Caiaphas, the Hasmonean, the Herod's old Palace where Pilate is now ensconced and across to the Hasmonean Palace, which is a very posh building that Herod now lives in. Herod was really keen to meet Jesus, the Gospels tell us. He was fascinated by him. He tried to see him a number of times. Perhaps he hoped that Jesus would entertain him with some miracles. Perhaps he hoped there'd be a lively debate, or he could question him. None of these things happened that morning. Jesus refused to perform. He refused to debate. He refused to even speak. Powerless to make Jesus speak, Herod exerts as much power as he can by mocking him and dressing him up like a doll. He dresses him in an elegant robe and he sends him back to Pilate. It's the second time that Jesus has come before Pilate. You can imagine the to and froing of Jesus being hauled around Jerusalem by this mob from place to place, trying to get this ultimate execution carried out. When Pilate sees Jesus dressed in this way, he says these words. You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither does Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. Perhaps the robe that Herod dressed Jesus up in was a white robe symbolizing innocence. But for some reason, when Pilate looked upon Jesus, he decided this man is an innocent man. Herod's found no cause against him. i found no cause against him. Pilate's got no appetite for condemning an innocent man. It seems that Herod, equally after beheading John the Baptist, is probably troubled by a person like Jesus and sends him back, dressed up. Pilate's testing the waters here. He's trying to figure out what to do. Pilate has two political prisoners He's got Jesus of Nazareth, and he's got a man called Barabbas. Now, Barabbas is a bandit who has been involved in terrorism within the Roman Empire. Not just a thief, but actually actively revolting against the Roman Empire. And so, there's a choice. There's a choice. Do the people want to release Barabbas, or do they want to release Jesus? And so he goes out to the crowd and says, who do you want to have? I can release one or the other. Who do you fancy? Well, you have to understand, guys, this crowd is not just a crowd of normal people. This is a special crowd put together by the temple authorities. Jesus had so much popular support in Jerusalem with a normal person. That person wasn't present that night. What you had here was sort of a renter mob. that had been put together by the temple authorities and temple leaders. And this crowd was only ever going to vote one way. They wanted Jesus to die. And they start clamoring for the death of Jesus. And they start turning up the screws on Pilate. They say, if you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. And they're trying to press these political pressure points. A calculated threat to put fear into Pilate. Caesar's friends is a special term. Uh, that he would have understood. It was to do with a, a close group of people who were around the emperor. And if you were in that group of people, then you were doing well. You had power and influence. But if you excluded from that, then it could be disastrous. It could even be fatal. So that's enough for Pilate. He says he can see Jesus has no popular support. He can see he's turning into a, a melting pot of trouble. He's worried about the Jews complaining to the emperor about Pilate. And so he does this probably the most famous event in this week, this famous washing of hands. When Pilate saw he was getting nowhere. Instead, an uproar was starting. He took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. Pilate's decided that the best route here is for Jesus to die. So Pilate releases Barabbas... And hands over Jesus to be flogged and crucified. Jesus was probably flogged and crucified by local non-Jewish people recruited into the Roman army. They often liked to get sort of lesser people to do the dirty work. So probably Greeks or even Samaritans were the people who flogged Jesus. Now, if you were a Samaritan, this was personal. Because the Samaritans hated the Jews, and the Jews hated the Samaritans. This went back hundreds of years, this, this feud. Jesus had told the story, hadn't he, that shocked so many. The story of the good Samaritan, the only person on the road who actually reached out to the injured man after the other religious people had passed by. But if you're a Samaritan, you're in charge of Jesus' flogging. Now, here was a chance to really let go at a, at a Jew. To really go to town on a Jew. And so they, they mock him, they beat him, they make a crown of thorns to thrust upon his head. Don't think of rose thorns here. Think of date, th- date palm thorns, which are as long as your finger. Horrible, brutal things that cause thousands of injuries across the planet every year. They stick in, the tips, break off, they're poisoned. The very palm branches that Jesus had been waved, had been waved for his entry a few days earlier the thorns from the same plant were now used to make a crown which was thrust onto his head. They mock him, hail the king of the Jews, what a joke. And they beat him. And they relish it. If they were Samaritans, a fantastic time they would had. He represented everything they hated. He was a Jew and they could go to town on him. They lead Jesus away to crucify him. The place is Golgotha. It's just outside the walls of Jerusalem. Very efficient distance from where Pilate would sentence you. A few hundred yard walk to where you could be crucified in an old quarry with a rock formation that looked like a skull. Hence the name. It's only a few hundred yards, but Jesus is unable to carry his cross. He's so weakened through being beaten, through blood loss, he can't even carry the cross the short distance. So a man called Simon the Cyrene is pressed into service to carry the cross for him. We don't know much about the mechanics of crucifixion. I'm not going to dwell on them too much today. But we do know, actually, people weren't lifted up high like they are in the films. You get this vision of Jesus being up high on a cross. No, literally, you were crucified at eye level. So people could walk past you and look you straight in the eye as you hung on a cross in agony, naked. The cross was designed to humiliate, to cause ultimate pain and ultimate shame. It was a shameful death. That was the whole point. It was a death designed to shame you and humiliate you and put you in so much pain, designed to terrify you, you would never rebel against the empire. That was the whole point of the cross, with millions of slaves across millions—sorry, uh, hundreds of different regions controlled by Rome. You needed a mechanism to maintain order, and that mechanism was the cross. Jesus wasn't the only person to die on a cross. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Jews died on a cross like Jesus, scourged and crucified, sometimes up roads into cities that are rebelled, sometimes in various places. 600 people crucified at one time To say, do not rebel against the empire. You rebel, you die horribly. For everyone to see. That was the fate of anybody who rebelled against the empire. There were two people crucified with Jesus on that day. The gospels record them as thieves. But they were were bandits. They were like Barabbas. They'd, They'd be out uh, on the roads trying to cause disruption and upset to the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. They were trying to disrupt that as any way they could. They were trying to, they were trying to fight against the, uh, the Roman occupation. You control the city, but we control the roads. They were like highwaymen. And so they were on the crosses that day as a sign to say, this is what happens if you rebel against the empire. And as far as Pilate was concerned, these were all political prisoners. They could all go the same way. But one of them seems to recognize Jesus in a class of his own. And he says to him, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It's beautiful, beautiful moment. And Jesus' reply is extraordinary, isn't it? In the midst of the pain and the dirt and the heat and the suffering, today you'll be with me in paradise. And paradise is a word borrowed from the Persians there. It means a walled garden, a place of, of shade and rest and coolness and Jesus somehow manages to paint this picture, the very opposite of what he's going through. This is where you'll be with me today, in this place of rest and peace and shade. It says that darkness came over the land from 12 noon for about three hours. And we we don't know why it wasn't a solar eclipse, because we know it's a Passover. And a Passover occurs at a full moon, and you can't have a solar eclipse with a full moon. That's just... That's just the way it works. And so it wasn't, it wasn't an eclipse. It wasn't a solar eclipse. Something happened that created a darkness that day. And we can only imagine this kind of weird cosmic event that's taking place. That somehow the whole of creation is, is, sort of, is manifesting the darkness that is gathering around Jesus on the cross. At 3pm, Jesus gives out a loud cry, a scream, a cry for help. And again, it's, it's so sanitized in the gospel, you, you, it's a blood curdling cry. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus crying out in agony in his last moments from the cross. And that, those words from Psalm 22 it's a cry of, of desperation and utter isolation. Um, and traditionalists would say, well, theologians would say, well, that's the point when the sin cut off Jesus from his father completely. But it's a prayer. It's a prayer. It's still a prayer of hope going out from Jesus, taken from the psalm. And I think we have to realise that Jesus is still crying out to his father at that point. Jesus is offered a a drink of sour wine. And after drinking it, he cries out, it is finished, and dies. Twelve hours from Gethsemane to his death. And because the Passover was about to begin at sunset... The Jews didn't want the bodies left on the crosses, so they, the Roman soldiers, would come and break the legs of the, um, any Jew hanging there, and that was supposed to hasten death through suffocation. Because actually, when you were crucified, you sat or stood on a small peg of wood, and the idea was to make you last as long as possible. So you didn't die quickly. This little peg of wood, which you sat on or stood on, was designed to help you last longer. Because the longer you lasted, the more of a deterrent you were. But Jesus died rapidly. And uh, he died so quickly, in fact, that um, Pilate was surprised. They had to to go and check, and they thrust a a spear into his side to make sure he was dead. And this blood and water flowed forth. A man called Joseph Arimathea came to ask for the body. And Pilate, satisfied that Jesus had died, albeit quickly, they took him down from the cross, they quickly wrapped him in linen, uh, and they didn't have a chance to wash him because sunset was approaching, so they did the bare minimum. They wrapped him in linen with spices and they put him in this tomb that uh, Joseph seemed to own, this new tomb, cut into rock. They put him in and stone was rolled and the, the tomb was sealed. And that was it. Jesus of Nazareth was dead. Can you imagine being one of the disciples that day? The adventure was over. Jesus was dead and buried. And all the promises and all the words and all the miracles, everything, everything ended there. And everyone went home. The sun set on Jesus' last day. The next day was Saturday, the Sabbath. And all you could do on the Sabbath was rest. So everyone must have been in this state of limbo, trying to comprehend what had happened to this man this incredible man who promised so much and seemed to deliver so little right at the end. Jesus knew all this would happen to him, and yet he still allowed it to happen. And we can look back on this story now because we kind of know the ending and we sort of, it passes us by, but imagine knowing how you're going to die. And it's not going to be a quick death. It's going to be one of the most painful, excruciating experiences you could possibly go through. And yet you still choose to go through it. Whenever Jesus told his disciples about the nature of his death, they were just confused. They just dismissed it. They didn't understand. They just want, let's get on to the main thing, Jesus, about you being in power and us being your powerful friends. And that's what they thought would happen. It must have been so utterly perplexing to them that actually what he said would happen did actually happen. They've probably forgotten this point, in the in three days I'll rise again. So if you watch your friend be turned to a pulp and then hung on a cross, the last thing you're thinking about is someone coming back from that. <coughs> At one point during his last meal with him, Jesus says these words. You heard me say, I'm going away, and I'm coming back to you. If you love me, You'll be glad that I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I've told you now before it happens, so when it does happen, you will believe. I will not say much more to you, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me, but he comes that so the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what the Father has commanded me. So this is the last time he shares this meal, this simple meal with the disciples. And It's like he's saying, I'm telling you, this before time, I'm telling you what's going to happen, so when it does happen, you'll know I wasn't kind of surprised. I wasn't caught out. The plan didn't fail because of the way this happened. I didn't lose. The powers of the world are coming, but they have no hold over me. And in fact, I'm going to demonstrate to you that love cannot be conquered by evil. And I'm going to do it a different way. I'm gonna do it through the pain and the shame of the cross. And I'm gonna come back. I'm gonna conquer death and show you that nothing can overcome the Father's love. So many people wanted Jesus dead. The temple authorities wanted him dead because he challenged their power base. For Pilate, he was just an inconvenience. He was a political bargaining chip. So he was he wanted him dead too. But Jesus didn't have to die. He didn't have to return to Jerusalem. He didn't have to stay in the garden. Jesus was prepared to die. He lived a life of love. And that love, he knew, could not even be conquered by death. Jesus' whole plan was to reveal the Father's love to those around him, to you and to me. And he did this through his life, his death, and his resurrection. So, you have to remember, you see, Jesus' life, we don't sing much about Jesus' life, do we? We sing mainly about the cross. But Jesus' life wasn't just a big long introduction to the cross. He lived a life. Jesus Emmanuel, God incarnate, came to live and to show us what love looks like. And the cross was part of that narrative. Jesus wasn't just incarnated to die. He came and lived and demonstrated the Father's love. He came and inhabited humanity to show us that the Father fully can associate with everything that we're going through. And he lived in a way that brought him into direct conflict with the powers. The culmination of which he knew would cause his death. But I want to encourage this morning, don't view the cross in isolation. The cross is part of the landscape of the Father's love that was demonstrated to the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus. The cross was a consequence of the Father's limitless love for you and for me. It was an inevitable conclusion of Jesus confronting the powers. When I first heard someone speak about the cross, it didn't land in my heart because I just just heard it transactionally. I just thought, well, there's a problem that needs to be fixed. Jesus fixed it, and that's okay. But the cross is so much more than that. It's the ultimate expression of Jesus' love for you and for me. And when I saw it that way, it changed me forever. The cross isn't just a transactional action. It's an expression of God's love for you and for me. And Jesus lived and he died and he rose again because of the Father's love. He said, I'm telling you all this ahead of time, so you'll know, you'll believe that the Father's love is real. And that's the true meaning of the Easter story. The Father's love is real. So let's open our hearts again to that love this morning. Why don't you stand me as you're able and invite the band to come back. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us about this talk, to hear more, or to find out about Riverside Church Whitstable, then visit our website at riversideuk.org. Also, you can contact us through our Facebook page or tweet us at WhitRiverside.